welcome to this week's episode of Where Peter is Live. We're coming to you today on the Feast of the Annunciation, March 25th. Um, I'm joined today by a regular attending. Well, two out of three. Oh, no. Where's Mike? <laughs> <laughs> the beginning. I believe he's dealing with some parental duties at the right. moment. That's what it looks like. Um, I'm joined today with Melinda Ribnick, our contributor, <laughs> Paul Fahey. Um, so this let's just kind of... This is total I know. We will mute Mike so that when he comes back, he doesn't interrupt us. Um, okay. Well, is everyone having a great feast day today? I know last week you talked about liturgical cupcakes, yeah. but... Yeah, there's then, so many solemnities. Right. I know. There's so many. This week, I totally kind of forgot... And I'm like, wait a minute, did we just have a solemnity? Um, I am like, I am going to take ownership of like the worst Catholic mom on the internet. So, um, but I did just, if you saw my Twitter page, I did just buy the kids a big thing of red vines. And so I'm officially going to call that their annunciation treat to be quiet while mom is at work. We didn't even really do a treat, but um. I did try to, so we're homeschooling like unexpectedly this year. And I tried to use like the math as a math lesson today. I was like, so babies are usually in their mom's tummies for nine months and it's the third month. And then we go to the 12th month is Christmas. And my first grader, she just was like looking at me like, mom, what are you even, what are you talking about right now? (laughs) That's like, what do they call that curriculum where you get so many different areas at once you get religion, like biology and math into like one. That's impressive, Rachel. That's why you're the best Catholic mom on the internet. (laughs) I am so not. You're talking stream, STR, STEM. It's stream, like oh, stream, yes, science, that's technology, our... religion, religion, yeah, uh, engineering, yeah. arts, math, and art, math, arts, yeah. math. It's like everything needs an acronym. Okay, I so, knew that. Mike, hey, Mike, welcome. What did I miss? Just the we show. were just talking about the feast day. Oh, the chit chat part. Yeah, the chit chat. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it, Mike. Just the okay. Chit-chat. Microphones are all functioning. Everyone's good. Okay, so we're <laughs> we're gonna shift in. Um, we're gonna do our typical little prayer here today and Paul is going to lead us in prayer um so let's all Paul take it away in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit amen uh heavenly father we thank you so much for this day we thank you for the gift uh of our mother mary uh mary we thank you for your response to the angel we thank you for your work um in in raising christ and bringing him into the world uh, to be our savior we pray together hail mary full of grace of the grace, lord is with thee blessed art thou among women, women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb jesus holy, holy mary, mary mother of mary, god, god pray for our pray sinners, for sinners now and now at the hour of our death amen see i made the mistake last spring when we shifted our parish staff meetings to zoom we tried saying prayers all together and the half second lag made praying all together not great so yeah i've been in that experience i think with my son's confirmation class it was like 40 100 it was like 100 people on the same zoom but it, you know it reminds me someone tweeted recently that one of the things that drove them crazy is catholics who can't keep the rhythm like in prayer um you know like during mass when it's like someone's like 
But the thing is, so my dad was a convert to the Catholic faith. He con he converted in his 20s and he had been Methodist before that. He never got the Catholic rhythm. Like he was done with the Our Father six seconds before the rest of the congregation was. <laughs> and it, dro it drove me up a wall. But like now I, I miss it. Like that's what that made me think of with hearing, you know, Rachel a half second after well, after you're Paul. welcome can i just <laughs> so. say that i like said amen at the end of the first half of the hail mary and i forgot we have to do the other half like so no matter <laughs> what you do you can't be worse than me at like I, you okay. missed it you can watch the retake you guys are like hail mary full of grace blah, blah, blah. and then i'm like amen and you guys are like wait holy mary well yeah. you know when i praying the Terrible. rosary like you're praying it like silently by yourself do you ever like think to yourself like you're like two Hail Marys into into a decade and then you're like, have I been praying the whole thing? Oh my gosh, <laughs> yes. And then I get imagining it. And then it's like, do I go back or do I go forward? Like, did my did my guardian angel fill in that? Oh, I probably prayed the whole I thing. Think, you know, exactly. Well, I think like the guardian angel did it. It'd be I. I think that's the mark of if you're a scrupulous person or not. If you go back and repray, then it's a scrupulosity. If you keep going, you're just like, the Lord will make up for it. Or like if you're on the, the third mystery and you're still thinking about the first one or or didn't even remember you're, that. Forgot. You know. Or if you're what using your hands. Your hands. You're using your hands and you forget, like you get to the end of one hand and you're like, wait, did I start on the other hand? Like, am I at five or six? The whole system for that. That's oh, man. Like so you guys are talking about praying the rosary like you do it all the time. And that puts you like levels ahead of me here. So. Oh, yeah. don't worry. <laughs> if I did it all the time, I'd have a better. No, <laughs> no it, it's ebbs and flows, you know, ebbs and flows. Yeah, but, for real. Um, Pope Francis talked yesterday on the vigil for the Annunciation about praying with Mary and how none of our prayers with her are in vain because she's our mom. That's so good. even if we kind of mess up, lose track of things, like she's a mom and she kind of covers for you. Um, so I, I kind of like that perception of Mary's motherhood. Um, he also says something somewhat controversial, or it's at least hit some headlines in this um, Wednesday audience yesterday. Um, he said that... Sometimes our exaggerated love for our mama, Mary, um, can cause us to give her some titles that maybe aren't quite exactly theologically correct. And he included the title of co-redemptrix um, in there. And so, Paul, I know that you're able to give a better recap of this whole idea of Mary as co-redemptrix. So can you just kind of fill our viewers and listeners in? Yeah. So it's been kind of a discussion in, in the church for a while, and this is not the first time the Pope has been critical of the title of co-redemptrix. And then Cardinal Ratzinger, he was as well, though I believe John Paul II used the title. Um, so anyways, the the idea behind the title uh, is, so Christ is the Redeemer, and the Pope really emphasized that in his statement yesterday. He's the Redeemer, but um, the baptized members of the church as members of the body of Christ um, can cooperate with Christ's redemption, right? Through our holiness, through our prayers, through our good works, we cooperate with Christ's redemption. Mary has a singularly privileged place of cooperation, right? She's the singularly privileged cooperator. So that's the theology behind giving her the title of co-redemptrix. So it's, so the Pope isn't denying any of that theology at all. Um, but he clearly doesn't like the title. And I think it's because it could give the impression that like um, she's uh, greater than a disciple or like semi-equal to Jesus or something like that. But um, he, so he's really trying to emphasize that 
Jesus is the Redeemer. And I also think it may be, and Cardinal Ratzinger talked about this, that like this arose out of the Middle Ages and was really talked about most by popes, I think in the late 1800s, early 1900s. So it may be like scholastic language that the post-Vatican Church Church is trying to move away from. So there isn't much like scriptural and early church father use of this terminology. So I think that may be why Pope Francis is trying to distance himself from that as well. Well, and, and I think one of the things is like, if I recall correctly, that yeah, because it emerged maybe in the Middle Ages, it's, I mean, theologically, yeah, it's a, it's a good point. It makes sense. It's one of those things, though, where the word co, or the prefix co, I mean, it could mean like co-pilot, so not actually the real pilot, but, you know, is she's essential to our, obviously, today we're celebrating the reason why she's essential to our salvation history, um, because she is the mother of God. She but all the other Marian dogmas are are sort of matters of fact. Like we believe these are things that actually happened historically. She's the mother of God. She was a perpetual virgin. Um, she was conceived immaculately. She was assumed into heaven. Um, whereas co-redemptrix is sort of like, oh, well, if we piece all these parts of the puzzle together, then, um, and and I mean, I'm, I, I think I'm oversimplifying it, obviously, I'm not a an expert on Mariology, but I've heard a lot of the arguments or the confusion that it's caused. Um, I don't, but there are a lot of people out there who really do pray uh, deeply for the fifth Marian dogma to be appeal uh, uh, to be approved or to be promulgated, I guess, through a, an ex cathedra statement. Um, I believe it was discussed at length, and I think this is where uh, Pope Benedict got his. Um, or where his thought may come from, or, or it springs from this discussion, was before the council. And one of the things was, it was like, well, we believe these things theologically, but is it, like, why is it necessary to to put out a, a dogma that is going to further confuse Protest- our Protestant brothers and sisters about Mary's role, about, you know, do we, if she's a if she's a co-redemptrix, does that mean she's on par with Jesus? Do we think she's superhuman? Do we think she's, um, you know, do, do, and, you know, we've, we've already got four Marian dogmas that, that we fight about, that we argue about with them. This just seems like piling on. Um, and it doesn't really change what we believe about her it, as Catholics. It was John the 23rd that took that off the table, right? Yeah. For the council. So Anyway, just some some thoughts on that. Just some background on Mary. And if Mary. if anybody does want to read some background on uh, on that specific issue, we did last time this came up with with Pope Francis, and it's actually gotten a lot of uh, traffic today. Um, and I'm gonna I'll put it in the in the comments here yeah, um, from December 2019. Yeah. Uh, where Pope Francis made maybe a, a, a milder rebuke, not rebuke, but a, a milder uh, critique of the term. And um, Robert Fastigi, who is a seminary professor up at Sacred Heart Seminary in Paul's home state of Michigan, um, wrote an essay explaining what co-redemptrix is. Um, I think he favors a, the, a dogmatic declaration at some point, which is, I mean, which is fine. You know, there, I mean, within orthodoxy, there are plenty of ways uh, to, you know, there's a lot of leeway. There's, there's flexibility. People have different emphases, but really in that 
the but also explaining that what the um the proposed or you know imagined dogma would be is really already part of our theology i guess it's just do we want it streamlined bundled up and declared as um a matter of infallible teaching so yeah. So we would be remiss if we didn't um, kind of acknowledge some things that are happening in the United States this past week. Um, we've seen two new outbreaks of gun violence um, and mass shooting events. Um, in Atlanta, we saw Asian women specifically targeted in a series of shootings. Um, six of the eight victims in that in those attacks were Asian women. Um, and then more recently this week, we had another shooting um, at a grocery store in Colorado. Um, it seemed like we kind of got a break from hearing news kind of repeatedly about these sorts of mass shooting events in the United States with the pandemic. But it seems like, at least my perception is that as things are opening up, we're seeing a lot more of it happening. Um, and one of the things that, you know, I was revisiting what Pope Francis has said about, you know, the weapons trade and guns, and he's spoken out about a few things. Um, but especially recently, he even called attention to the fact that there was um, record setting gun sales last year during the pandemic in the United States. Um, and he really called attention to what he called the hyperinflation of the individual um, and people losing the sense of the common good. And he kind of almost predicted that we might see um future terrible events like this happening again. Um, it just seems the loss of the common good is something that we see come to bear in all different areas of our social life. Um, it's all sort of connected. Um, but part of that is definitely the racism that's underlied um, a bunch of these events, um, especially the anti-Asian hatred that motivated likely, or seems to have at least partially motivated um, the shooter in Atlanta. Um, I don't know if anyone has any thoughts. I know it's it's been something that we've been talking about and just seeing a lot of hurt and pain um, from our Asian and Asian American brothers and sisters who haven't had attention brought to the racism that they often suffer, and especially in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic and um, there was a math. There's been a massive increase of um, anti-Asian attacks throughout the country. Um, yeah, I think the stat was like a hundred and forty percent increase. Um, yeah. And a lot of the rhetoric, again, we heard from former President Trump with the Chinese virus and all of that. Um, you know, humans were very prone to scapegoat. Um, so scapegoating, you know, China, and then of course by extension for some, all of Asians was a trap that, that, that many fell for. Um, and then we, we also do know too, that race is an issue in these shootings for sure. There's, um, you know, when we use terms, we should be careful of like the definition of them. So there's mass shooting rates, right. Which include, um, anybody who has been injured, not necessarily killed, that would be like three to four victims is typically generally the, the definition. Right. And so we have stats to bear that out, um, that kind of for more or less somewhat reflect the population, but those stats for those mass shootings also are taking into consideration like gang violence, domestic disputes, robberies, anywhere where three or four or more people are shot. Um, and so 
Then we have something else, which is domestic terrorism, right? And we have extremist violence. And that is grossly disproportionately um, a white supremacy issue in the country. Um, and as we know, um, although white supremacy has been uh, an issue since before we were founded as a country, and the last year or two, it's become explicit, longer than a year or two, but especially during um, you know the last administration, it's become more explicit and stated and the, the fires were stoked and all of this. And so, mo so people predicted that these types of incidences would happen and that is what happened. And that's not, um, and so the stat for um, domestic terrorism post 2001, September 11th, to um, I think the congressional report on it was 2019, was that 73% um, of all um, extremist incidences that in infatalities were from um, white supremacy, and then the other 26, 27% were from um, Islamic extremists. So you would think about the awful um, Miami nightclub and San Bernardino and um, the Boston bombing, right? Those would be yeah. the other... And then there were no other groups besides those two. So, so what we know is, is that, yes, white supremacy, racism has a large role in the violence that we see. And then as we're also having this discussion, there is also the issue of gun violence. So there's multiple ways to approach this. Um, and so we do need to talk about the racism issue. Um, it does appear that the last shooting um, in Colorado, uh, you know, um, was from a Muslim man, right? So we don't know the role that like white supremacy or we don't even know the role that his own beliefs, whether they're extreme or not played in. But we do know that that gun was bought um, six days after um, after the NRA. Well, does someone know all, I feel like my, I don't want to like, I don't want to, I don't want to state this incorrectly, but 10, day, 10 days prior, right? The NRA had appealed some legislation from not making those assault rifle rifles um, legal, right? And then he buys it a few days later. And then a few days later, we have 10 people dead. And so we do know too, that gun violence is, you know, also an issue to come at this from. Um, and what I was tweeting about was the issue of where does my right, you know, to be safe, confront somebody's right to go buy a semi-automatic weapons without, you know, the necessary checks and balances in place. Um, and I will say, and I want to, you know, open this up to y'all's thoughts too, but for me, I cannot get over that every time, not every time, but a lot of the times I'm at a grocery store, I'm sitting in mass, I'm somewhere and I'm looking at my kids and I have seven of them and I have had to have the mental game of deciding if something happens, who do I grab? And by nature, who do I have to not grab? Right. And it, these kind of heartbreaking, like, um, thoughts and discussions we have to have are reality. So at some point we've got to start, you know, addressing where does the common good, where do all of our rights to be safe in our common, um, you know, home confront an individual's right to own that kind of weaponry. You know, one of the things that Okay, now I, I guess I'm I'm speaking about this as somebody who, even though I, you know, I grew up in a in a fairly conservative environment. I I grew up in a blue state on the East Coast, near a you know, in between two major cities, um, and I, to me, I've never, and I mean, I, it's funny because I talk to people from like Montana and Texas, and you know, they'll they'll like laugh at me. Um, I just don't I don't understand the the need I, I i mean i guess there you know 
maybe some people enjoy shooting targets recreationally. Some people, obviously hunting was a major part. It was a major food source for us and, and is probably for some people out in the country even now. But to me, it just seems that when somebody has a gun, they wield so much power that if something snaps, or even if you're at, you know, if you're at the, the, the shooting range, I mean, you know, what's to stop somebody from, I don't know. I mean, to me, it seems like so much power in someone's hands. And yeah, I, you know, the vast majority of, of gun owners aren't planning to shoot anyone. And most of them don't shoot anyone, but it just seems that, that they can, so easily get into the hands of somebody and is it worth the cost um i mean i'm you know the second amendment is kind of built into the american psyche um in in europe and other places around the world it strikes people as odd that that americans can just have a gun can you know in different places i mean open carry laws in some places and and that people have collections and um I mean, I don't know. I'm not. I, I'm not from a an area where where that's a big culture where it kind of people are it, people look at it as like, oh wow, that's kind of like a, a, a an odd mentality to have. Well, uh, I would say it's not just an American mentality though, because it's also seeped in very much into like the Christian mentality. And for a while, right, the religious right, right. And for a while, um, you know, I don't. Catholics have been kind of separate, more separate in identity from evangelical Christians. And that's always been a thing on the, you know, on that, on the religious right. Um, but I was noting this summer as those sales were skyrocketing. Okay. Those sales were skyrocketing. It was by the millions of guns, right? Um, because people were like in fear because of the polarized language, because of the, you know, the unrest that could come with the pandemic. So basically at the time I was like, why is it okay that we see this kind of escalation of rates when people are buying out of fear, anxieties, like stoked hatred, like none of that was a good reason to buy guns. But you saw, and again, this is where Catholics need to see this is a problem in our circles. You saw um, Tim Gordon come and do videos where he explicitly, I have a friend who literally bought a gun. Um, because she watched a Tim Gordon video in which he was, you know, telling Catholics to go arm up for the civil war. So you see that oh, yeah. very pro gun. Yeah, this is a problem. Well, in the <laughs> gun range in, in uh, Veritatis <laughs> in, Splendor's in Tyler, like, Texas, Tyler, yes. Texas plan. It's like, oh, this is yeah. our Catholic oh, community and here's the gun range. Right. <laughs> and I mean, and so it's I like. saying Americans too. I think we have to also be clear. This is also a very like, it's in whites religious right circles, right? Because you don't see the gun ownership as being a culture in other ethnicities in America, right? And so, yeah, no, let's, let's, um, I do think we have to identify the problem. This is religious like, right? In America's gun um, culture, right? That is quickly come into Catholic culture as well. So we've had well, someone and- point out, yeah, on the, I was just going to highlight that, <laughs> that comment as well, Mike, that someone pointed out, you know, Suicides were up dramatically in 2020, as far as we know from data. And the rise in gun sales cannot have affected that positively. Like it would only make it go even higher. And so it's just such a dangerous situation we find ourselves in. And it really is a situation where to pursue the common good together, we need to let go of some of these individualistic ideas and really try to work together to talk about 
our shared concerns, our shared values, and see what what we can do as a society to address these kinds of problems. And I think the polarization Melinda is pointing out and how there are these um, factions, even within our own church, that exacerbate these divisions, make us even farther away from a point where we can come together and do that. Um, and so this might be a good point to transition to our next kind of topic that we were planning on covering, which is this polarization, especially in Catholic media um, and it, how it's influenced your average person in the pew. Um, earlier this week, uh, the bulwark. So well, Jonathan V. Last's column in the bulwark actually featured one of my tweets about Tim Gordon, who um, Melinda just mentioned, which was kind of weirdly surprising. Um, I had a couple people send it to me at the same time, like, oh, you made the bulwark. And you're um, like, not what I want to be talking about, but yes, I do. <laughs> right. And so what was actually shared was um, something I had tweeted about Tim Gordon, well, the Gordon brothers, because Tim Gordon has a brother named David Gordon, and they had been promoting and working on a book about feminism for a while that they had been kind of talking about and planning. And it was supposed to be published by Sophia Institute Press, um, like which last is, year. And then it, this Taylor, which Marshall's is publisher, and they, which is the publisher of yeah. Infiltration. They have a forthcoming book from Austin Ruse as well. Um, I'm not sure what that title was, but, um, and they are affiliated with or kind of in a partnership with EWTN Publishing. So yeah. it's, EWTN's yeah, not, book publishing arm, uh, yeah. uh, or they have some agreement of some kind with them. Yeah. yeah. Um, but they had, the Gordons had gotten the book dropped by Sophia Institute Press over some really inflammatory, um, frankly, misogynistic tweets that David Gordon had sent a while back. Um, now these I don't believe guys, that, Rachel. I don't believe I know, they right? anything misogynistic was, and inflammatory. Well, I, I'll and, tell you what the tweet said because I looked it up the other day to be reminded. Yeah. And they, they don't they, they, remember. They're not embarrassed by this. Like we're not no. this is not calumny. Like they right. are open and they're open also about their goal is to shift the Overton window. So the Overton window of like acceptable, socially acceptable discourse. So their mm -hmm. their goal is to do that. And reactionaries do this by just saying the most extreme things possible to get the whole window to shift over. So that's their approach. And Melinda, okay, you want to describe yeah, this? So, I don't. <laughs> um, well, the tweet said, um, and now I'm forgetting the exact adjective, but it, the most, I think, regrettable, some synonym of regrettable thing in our society are abortions and plus size models. Yeah. And it was a photo of like just an ad, like a really body positive ad for women's activewear that he had come across in a Walmart. Like this was really triggering for him that there was a woman who was plus sized in leggings and a sports bra. And so he tweeted that photo with that caption and that got him dropped by Sophia Institute Press. He then went and he, he works for church militant. So he wrote a post or a column, a screed really about his firing and how this is unfair cancel culture. Um, and that is how they announced really that the book was kind of off. Um, so this is the tweet that got shared in the bulwark. And it was just one example that last cited of culture wars basically wrecking the Catholic church uh, because this kind of reactionary misogynistic approach is not unique to Catholics. Like we see it in other alt-right type figures all the time. Um, but what last pointed out was 
Uh, also, EWTN has kind of dabbled in some of the GOP talking points, which, Mike, you might know something about EWTN and a little bit. Yeah, well, they parroting. Had... <laughs> well, they had um, they interviewed what's her name, uh, Taylor Green. Um... Yeah, Mark Taylor Green. Yeah. On, on EWTN News, and they pr presented this very positive portrait of her. I guess her yeah. fellow, her fellow uh, Congress people wanted to um, censure her, and she <laughs> basically gave her- Well, her remove her from Congress. Remove her, I yeah, and, yeah. And, and I I mean, I'm sorry, I'm not- yeah. No, it's but, fine. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, the presentation was, it was because she was pro-life, and because she was a Christian, and because she was, you know, standing under up for- Under spiritual attack. Under, she was and, and they just presented this un, uh, unqualified, with no, with no pushback. She's, here's the thing, she's not even Catholic. So this mm -hmm. is, so, but this is somehow Catholic news that this person who's an open QAnon supporter who somehow got into Congress um, is, is now playing the victim and they, and the, you know, the, the Catholic television station of note is acting like this is, this is a totally justified situation. Um, when you I mean, talk about the Overton window though, sorry to like interrupt, but it's, that's okay. <laughs> but it's like, I did not, Maybe I wasn't aware of that shifting Overton window when I started, when we started where Peter is. Like, I honestly thought there were some good faith disagreements with Pope Francis that were based on misunderstandings. Like if you look at uh, the, the complaints about Amoris Laetitia, for example, um, the day after it came out, Cardinal Burke wrote uh, a column in the National Catholic Register saying it is not part of the magisterium. And his justification for that was a statement in paragraph three of the exhortation that basically said, uh, not everything has to be answered by an intervention of the magisterium. It didn't say, by the way, the 300 something paragraphs that follow are not part of the magisterium. It was that, you know, I can't cover everything in one book was all it meant. And, and people picked up on that line and they were sharing this, you know, Cardinal Burke says it's not magisterial. That became sort of the talking point. And I thought, well, let's, Obviously, it is, by all accounts, magisterial. Pope Francis said it was magisterial. Then he promulgated the Buenos Aires directives and said, these are magisterial. Who gets to decide what's magisterial? It is the Pope. And uh, so I just thought, like, let's, let's just show people, like, you want to be uh, a conscientious, reasonable, thoughtful Catholic who thinks about these issues positively. Um, Take a look at what Vigano has said. It correlates, you know, later on, it was like, it correlates with the QAnon conspiracy theory. He's saying so-and-so is in league with, you know, the, the Pope is in league with the devil. He's saying these things that can be verified that aren't factual. Um, Cardinal Burke starts advocating that, you know, saying that the third secret of, uh, or no, saying that, that, uh, Russia hasn't been consecrated to the Sacred Heart in the way that Our Lady of Fatima asked, even though Sister Lucia and Pope John Paul II said it was in the 1980s. Like, so I'm like, let's bring some of these things to light so that people can really see that there's some, some seriously 
bizarre things that are going on in these circles. Like there are ideologies and ideas and false assumptions that are underlying it. But what I've come to realize over the course of time is that that Overton window has shifted. You know, now... Can you the, define, sorry, can you define for some of us what you mean by like Overton window? Because I actually, I haven't heard that. So it's some kind of communication theory. I'm guessing the guy who coined it was named Overton. But it's I'm like within the Overton, everyone listening too. Yeah, so know. the Overton window is like the window of like socially acceptable discourse. Not necessarily like politically correct, but it's okay to talk in these ways. Gotcha. And so the underlying idea is like, if we want to actually make our views known, like then we need to move the window to closer to where it is acceptable. Like our views are considered acceptable. I mean, but, and I mean, the that's idea assuming is like, that you have extreme yeah. views, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. right. And I thought right. a lot of the, a lot of the narrative around those kinds of figures that like what they used to justify sort of some of these reactionary views is that um, the Overton window has shifted to, you know, wokeness or some um, PC perspective mm -hmm. where now it's not even acceptable to, you know, hold traditional views of sex or marriage or, you know, be anti-abortion or any number of things. So yeah, or to be a misogynist. Yeah. <laughs> but they're saying in order to shift it back, even towards those good things, we have to be really extreme. It's like you put a heavy weight on the end to tip the scales in your gotcha. favor. You can't see my great arm gestures to illustrate this for you. <laughs> I didn't mean to interrupt but my like, but like in the, that. That but like in, the, in the Catholic sense, like early on, I remember, you know, there'd be these crazy people on social media who would be, you know, they, they would be like Deus Volt, you know, yeah. 2016. And with a picture of like some like knight with a skeleton for a head, like ready to like whack a dragon or something. And they would say Pope Francis is a heretic. But then you'd have other people come in, even Cardinal Burke or, you know, and they'd say, nobody's saying Pope Francis is a heretic. He's saying some things, however, that are, are confusing the faithful and are giving them the wrong impression. And, oh, it's so tiring that we have to clarify Pope Francis because even though he means well, right? And they're like, he yeah. does do some nice things. I understand the gestures. They're very nice, but you have to be precise when it comes to the teachings. Well, you know, and then to say that now, took advantage of the now those but that same took people, advantage of the window having shifted. Now some of the people, yeah. the, wind, the window has shifted to the point where their discourse is, should we depose Pope Francis for heresy or has Pope Benedict been the Pope all along? And it's the same people saying that, you know, it's like, it's just moved to that point where the things that like people think, I mean, you can, and you can watch this drift, you know, from Father Z who started Father John Zulsdorf, what does the prayer really say blog started off with reading Francis through Benedict in 2013, 2014. Oh, well, how can we understand Francis through the um, hermeneutic of continuity to the point where he's openly flirting with the fact that Francis was never really the Pope and that Benedict is still the Pope and saying that nobody has ever countered the uh, accusations of heresy against Francis that these obscure people have compiled in a book. And it's, and like, how did, how did they get from there to there? And don't they want 
to know the other side of the story. Like that was one of the things when, you know, I wrote that piece where it was like challenge accepted. Like you say that nobody has countered the dubia. Nobody's countered the, that um, the Amazon prayer ritual wasn't paganism. Nobody's, and it's, it's sort of like, first of all, they don't link to us. Like I did actually mention that in my reply and, and we wound up getting a link from father Z, but if but also like when I, wrote the piece about Raymond Arroyo and um, Archbishop Vigano. I got no hate mail. I got nobody challenging me because when Raymond Arroyo trashed a false version of my position, like he didn't say what my argument was or what my evidence was. He made up that I, that I, he made up facts that were not my case. He didn't mention my name. He didn't mention my blog. It's because they want to keep the echo chamber closed. They don't exactly. want reason to get in. They don't and want. He, and it's like, now I'm the type of person where I hear somebody alluding to somebody lying about somebody else in public. Like, I want to dig. I want to find out who it is. I'm going to research it. I'm going to be like, let me hear the other side of the story. Like, why are these two people in conflict with each other? But he's built it in such a way that he knows it's these little old ladies who watch EWTN that are watching his program. And they're not going to get on. They're not going to Google who's been accusing him of doing a fake interview with with vegan. If he, now, if he gave them my name, they might look it up. And I am more than happy to explain why he was why why Raymond was dishonest in his response to me. Um, another thing is like Taylor Marshall. Like everyone here, I assume has been blocked by Taylor Marshall on Twitter. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I love the tweet I got blocked for. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm not on Twitter me. enough to even know. No, but he's, I, would check I remember Paul. the first article I was going to write for WPI. I, I approached when I said, look, I want to write this, you know, this big um, expose or whatever, because people need to know who Taylor Marshall is and people don't even know. Oh my goodness. So that never got published. Uh, <laughs> we can publish real. it. Actually, our Patreon um, subscribers can read the draft. <laughs> that I'm going to put that up if I can find that draft. Those are great rewards there, that? Mike. The drafts no. that never made it. You Melinda's magnum opus. Like the outtakes from where Peter is. If you want to read, Melinda Rivneck spent like 43 hours transcribing Taylor Marshall. I didn't even no. really know you Wait. at the time. It was this Wait. random person. <laughs> I was transcribed. First of all, okay, I want to keep this very charitable, but I had to listen through these videos of this man. Yeah. So one day I'm like, Mike, I'm listening to this thing. It's taking, and you're like, you know, there's a transcript button at the top of the little YouTube, whatever, whatever. And I was like, you know, when you go to YouTube, you can like pull out the transcript of what people say. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have been literally burning off purgatory listening to this man. It is my nummy. And now you tell me, but that 4,000 word essay that nobody wants to read. Um, Our patrons want to read it. <laughs> I want to read it. And they can. It, just my, it, it got so long because I even like dwindled it down to three videos, which I watched. But like every statement that came out of the man's mouth wasn't true. And you can oh, yeah. back it up with a reason or a citation of where it was objectively false. And so that was really eye-opening to me because I was like, the people watching this are not even, they're not basic fact-checking. They're not like, it, they're, it's, I, it's just affirming a base. They're not even trying to see if what this man, so this man can come 
and like say that, you know, Pope Francis is the worst, you know, whatever, whatever, right? The heretic, whatever, who knows? And these people will allow, we've gotten to a point where 2020 Catholics, 2021 Catholics will allow someone to call Pope Francis a heretic without even doing basic fact checks. And it's crazy. Oh, yeah. And it, and, it, and it shifted. And I think, at least for me, working in a parish is one of the bigger problems. It's not necessarily that I hear people in my parish calling Pope Francis a heretic, but it shifted the discussion so much that there's this like atmosphere of suspicion. Oh, yeah. Why would we ever have an atmosphere of suspicion towards anything about the Pope? The Pope. Said, right. right? <laughs> or there's yeah. this like, oh, Vigano is a person, like a credible person and not a total kook. Right. Oh, yeah. Like, so the extreme like online rhetoric has and an EWTN right has like sh just shifted it so there's this atmosphere um that prevents people from being able to access what Pope Francis is saying right now to them and here and now well and, and that's what I think a lot of like bishops and pre and priests don't don't realize it's like and and even some of them don't really quite quite get it like some of them want to say Oh, I want to stay out of it. I don't want to be part of this polarization. I, I don't want to contribute but, to it. But how many but bishops? Thing, how many bishops endorsed Vigano in well, 2018? But the thing is, they don't. They not only are they not looking closely at it, they're not looking closely at the counter argument. They don't know that where Peter is is out there doing the homework, digging up. You know the, and we're not the only. I mean, Austin Ivory, Stephen Walford back in the day, Scott Eric all. Uh, Dave, Arm I mean, David Winnott, Dave Armstrong, like people have really dug into this and, and, and a lot of people have done amazing work to debunk some of this stuff. But the thing is, like, I found that people who are like, oh, well, I don't say bad things about the Pope. But the fact of the matter is they have already developed this negative, suspicious sense about him. And then like they don't have the facts, they don't know the story. They've got this general sense that he's kind of not good, and then they just want to stay out of it because they're charitable. Well, but they don't that realize that the people are brainwashed that they're dealing with. Well, yeah, I mean, priests aren't realizing this, but it's also the general atmosphere of suspicion around Pope Francis, coupled yeah. with this weird hyper focus on specific like triggering issues. Like to go back to the Gordon example, it's the underlying kind of misogyny, or if they see feminism, they are going to react against it. And it's this really myopic view of like what it is to be a true faithful Christian to them or faithful Catholic probably is what they would say, um, is to hold orthodox, whatever they define as orthodox teaching, on a particular topic. So on like patriarchy in Catholic families or on human sexuality, um, that is the hallmark. It's not like all of this other stuff around it can be compromised. All of mm -hmm. how we preach the truth, how we speak in charity, how we approach those who disagree with us, that's kind of we can let that go. We just need to hammer right. home these it, truths. And anything then, that's been yeah. taught in the last 40 years is off. So, yeah. I mean, <laughs> so, it's so a whole Milo, suspect. Yeah. So, so Milo's a good example. A couple of weeks ago, <laughs> he gave an interview with LifeSite News and he was being heralded as this like, you know, like prodigal son returns type of thing. Why? Because because he said that like, he's no longer living as a gay person. I actually think he said he's ex-gay, which comes with a whole host of problems, right? Or right. connotations, but, connotations but he's also like um you know he's still making violent threats even in this interview like he mm -hmm. he he's he's still saying these horrible things but it's as if um 
well, he says he's ex-gay, so that like covers a multitude of the rest of his sins. Or, well, even with like Marjorie Taylor Greene, she hates liberals, so that covers the rest of her sins, right? Like She's pro-life, so that covers everything. Right. Yeah, right. yeah, like you said, we just focus on these really specific things, and it doesn't matter. Well, so I want to give an example of exactly what you're saying, Paul. So I watched a clip today that someone sent me with uh, Milo and Tim Gordon's um, interview, whatever. Um, anyway, and, and then he says, oh, well, the guy who did you guys see this? The guy who um, finally repeals the 19th Amendment, which is the right for women to vote, would be the new sexiest guy. And there he would have hundreds of women want to sleep with him. <laughs> okay, so I don't want to go on that tangent because we all know that that's straight up insanity. And he's like, I'm in this chat room and all the women are saying, yes, yes, yes. And I'm like, congratulations for finding like a chat room of really broken women. But regardless, but yes, Paul, like it's the same thing. He can come and say women shouldn't have, it's sexy for women to not have the vote, right? A man who would be against us is sexy and people are still lauding him. Why? Because he believes that you can become ex-gay because, and Rachel, you were you were um, heading in this direction because you, you were saying this, because for this group of people, like the faith is all boiled down to specific what they would call orthodox issues. But I would say that those, those issues must always, it's always sexual politics or sexuality because they certainly don't mind like devaluing all of Catholic social teaching. Um, but yes, it's this like idolization and this kind of um, almost when we talk about like, um, you know, evils being a distortion of a good or goods brought out of, out of proper order. It's that kind of manipulation of the goods of Catholic social teaching where it's, you know, to the extent or Catholic sexual teaching where it's, manipulated and brought out of order. Uh, but that is the whole definition of it is, as long as you are okay on what we consider to be orthodox sexual politics, then you can do whatever you want. You can be in the proud boys, you can be, you know, racist, you can be whatever. That's cool. You can be against women voting because somehow sexual, Catholic sexual issues is just about like sex. It's not even about the whole of respect of no, women. It's not women. about a person. It's, right. just it's about not about a person. It's just about sex. So, Two things I want to I want to say about what okay. you just said, Melinda. <laughs> all right, let's um, go. <laughs> number one, first of all, because this was a dare that was brought up to us, you know, people and oh where where Peter is, people who were as soon as as soon as Milo came out with his with his statement, and then to a to a lesser or maybe even to a greater degree when the when the CDF document on blessing of same sex couples came out, they said, okay, well, where are you now? You know, are, are you orthodox on this? Why, why aren't you? Why aren't you praising Milo saying this? Well, first of all, I hope and I pray that Milo lives a life of chastity. That he embraces that. That is a good thing. Period. That is what the Catholic Church teaches. Great. But has he converted? Has he really experienced a, it sounded like he intellectually already believed in the Catholic church. It's just that he hadn't brought himself to change his lifestyle at that point, his idea of the Catholic church, but obviously his positions on race, his positions on Catholic social teaching, his approach towards other people, um, the idea of being charitable, the idea of um, respecting the magisterial authority of the church, respecting the Pope. I believe, did he write a 
he wrote at least a column, maybe even a book against the Pope. A book, yeah. Yeah, and he hasn't repealed that. So in a lot of ways, it's it's sort of like, okay, well, that's fine, but don't lord the guy over us like he's some kind of example to be followed because you know all of us have areas of where we're where we're less where we don't meet the mark and um i certainly don't consider him a role model um well and and even when you said hey okay we want people to live a chase life is chase literally just defined by physically not having unmarried sex like you know what i mean so it's like yeah, yeah what you're saying is that whole thing so i just wanted to like go to that tiny little point but yes like that's the whole point like why are we considering this man who's saying that it's sexy for women not to vote chaste like what kind of chastity yeah. is that like, not chastity. And, and point number two point number two <laughs> okay, i want to bring up point, point number two okay my kids okay. Not interrupt. <laughs> and this is this is key and this is a magisterial teaching of the Catholic Church that was emphasized at Vatican I in 1870 and has been repeated by every single pope since then in some way magisterially, possibly with the exception of John Paul I, but that was only because he was pope for 33 days. It's that the pope is the guarantor of orthodoxy. And somehow, and it's funny because Austin Ruse recently unblocked me he uh, he called me, a, a, well, both you and me, right, Melinda? He, he did unblock me, but now he's like stalking me. So well, yeah. but, I have blocked um, him now and he's still at my page constantly. Um, so. A member of the dissident left. I was the dissident yeah. left. You were the dissident left. I'm dissident. <laughs> dissident. With you and your seven kids, me and me and my my home school. I mean, I only have four kids, so well, you know, I mean, to verify. But yeah, it's like show me what I'm dissident. Like exactly, and 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 so here's, but it's but it's sort of like, where does their concept of orthodoxy come from? Oh, like he said, remember he keeps telling you, Mike, stop hating. What is it orthodox called? Organized, Catholics. Ortho- no, organized orthodoxy. Organized orthodox. Like, what is organized orthodox? Like, that is known as the catechism of the Catholic Church. Yes, that's, yeah, like, that's the catechism. That's organized orthodoxy. Like, no, no, yeah. right, I'm an idiot. Does he believe that the catechism is orthodox? Is that his definition? I, I or, don't no, know. No, no, he I'm doesn't like organizations you, that are based on that. what he thinks is orthodox. Wait, is that a real thing, though? Like, is that a real, like, no, I mean, it's organized. And it's orthodox. Yeah, but is that your definition or his definition? (laughs) Oh, that's my definition. No, no, his definition is like we're thinking the same thing at the same time right there. Yeah, (laughs) his definition is when Michael Voris decides to start a television station or a a, a website and organize it and say they're orthodox. Okay, so basically we need to... We need to organize our site more. Is that what he's saying? Like No, 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 no. He's saying that we that we're the dissident left. We don't agree with orthodoxy as opposed yeah, to we're disorganized. As, no, I don't think as opposed to a, a comp, like we just resent that EWTN is a bunch of uh orthodox Catholics who have gotten together and organized and started a So that's what his I think that's what his definition is. But it's like wait a minute, no. I object to EWTN's dissent. Like they openly dissent from Catholic teaching. They, ha- I mean, Father Gerald Murray, who is part of the papal posse, was one of the was one of the people who blurbed that book that accused the Pope of being a heretic, and maybe not even the real Pope. 
Right. Um, and they're, you know, chummy with, with some of these figures like Tim Gordon, they're appearing on their podcast. Yeah. And Car- and Cardinal and Burke showed up, shows up, used to show up on, on the, on the world over all the time. And he, and, and on the, showed up. Right. You know, did a pre-scripted did a interview and declared the terms. And then they cut out the most crazy parts because their audience probably couldn't handle it. But I digress. And to me, it's not just a problem that he, we're not just saying it's a problem that EWTN dissents. In, like, that's a problem, obviously. But the root of that problem is deeper. And it comes with this, like, really myopic focus on specific issues as, like, the hallmarks or the indicators of orthodoxy. And I feel like that underlying problem has kind of skewed perspectives for a while now. And one of the ways we can see that is, I think all of us, or at least a few of us, are rereading Amoris Laetitia. I'm kind of reading the whole thing straight through for the first time. I just finished Uh, today. Okay, you just finished. It's a long one. So here's the thing. That's what I was going to say is if you want to talk about organized orthodoxy, like the zoomed out view of marriage and family life, like to systematically kind of walk through that. Um, as Pope Francis did in that apostolic exhortation, takes a really long time. It is a super, it is what, eight chapters plus a conclusion? Like it's nine chapters? Yeah, it's it it's nine. super long, okay? Printing it People off. People stopped I was doing, at eight, started yeah. at eight and stopped at eight. <laughs> People stopped, started at eight, stopped at eight, <laughs> only read eight. But it is very long and it's very comprehensive and in-depth and it situates these issues that people tend to focus on in the broader context of like what marriage is, what love is is and how love is lived throughout a couple's life and how love is not just, like conjugal love say love between spouses is not just like following these sexual teachings in the right way and like ticking boxes it is happening in the context of a really integrated relationship and something that is occurring as a couple matures through their life and has children he talks about like aged couples like how they develop new levels of emotional intimacy like it's just these things that if you only took maybe a version, like a, a Cliff's Notes version of what you would see on EWTN or read in like a your average mar- marriage prep packet, it would kind of gloss over that. It wouldn't just kind of explore all of those dimensions of love. And so I just wonder how much people's perspectives have been skewed in ways that we're only starting to realize because Pope Francis is challenging us with that more expansive view of marriage and family life. Um, I'm not sure if, if anyone else has impressions from reading the document recently, like compared to all the things we see uh, out there in the media or in kind of the broader culture. I know that in pastoral ministry, Paul, that you have dealt with engaged married couples and talked, you, you've written about this. Um, you have a few published pieces. Um, so what is maybe like, how do you, have you seen maybe this weirdly hyper-sexualized focus of man, ministry to married couples and families kind of play out? What are some examples that you can yeah, draw I, from? I, I mean, I think and th- this principle underlies just about, I mean, all of the Pope's teaching. He talks about in The Joy of the Gospel that um, realities are greater than ideas or more important than ideas, Right. Um, so, and that's throughout all of Amoris Letizia, he's focused on the real life of couples. Um, and not just in, when they're in like a regular uh, relationships and things like that. Um, but in general, like that's the most important thing. Um, and so that's in his discussions about sexuality, that's in his discussions about chastity, that's in his discussions about regular married life is reality is more important than ideas. 
um, I was talking with a Catholic counselor um, not too long ago, and we're talking, we're having a very similar conversation. And um, he was expressing some uh, frustration with how, at least how theology of the body is presented in the United States. And I'm like, well, have you read Amoris Laetitia? And he's like, Paul, when I read it, I cried. He's <laughs> like, it was like, it was written by a counselor. He's like, I felt like it was written for me, right? And by someone who's actually listened to people, right? Um, and that's very much the sense of it. Um, even when he talks about uh, talks about chastity, not just in Amoris Laetitia, but in um, the letter that he wrote about St. Joseph, I, I wrote about this last week, when he talks about chastity, it's the Pope's definition of chastity is love free of possessiveness. It's not, you know, are you not having sex before you're married, right? It's not, are you not using contraception? It's love free of possessiveness. And there's a whole chapter on chastity in the catechism, and it goes into great detail, draws a lot from John Paul II, how it's this like interior ordering where our passions are ordered into our will, and then we're able to then freely give ourselves to another and then freely receive another. And they're speaking the same thing. Pope Francis just says it a lot more concisely, but where I'm free to love without the fear or the need that I'm not going to be able to receive in return where I'm free to love without like, um, you know, uh, what's keeping score, right? And not just with sex, but with everything in marriage and a family, where like, I'm, I'm free to, to wake up in the morning and get the kids breakfast and not keep score and think, okay, so tomorrow morning, my wife's going to do it. You know, um, that's the freedom that, that's the freedom that chaste love is. And it's very, very real. And when the Pope talks about it, it's like concrete acts of love for the real people in front of you. Not, not some ideal, right? Not, and not that the ideals, not that we shouldn't ever talk about them, but the Pope just brings it really down to earth. My perception of a lot of the ways that the theology of the body is presented like in popular maybe discourse and as background, I used to teach natural family planning for several years and was involved in this closely. So that's what I'm, that's the experience I'm drawing from, but it was often used kind of as like an argument to try to persuade people to do certain things or not do certain things. Like don't use contraception, don't have sex before marriage. And here's the reason why it's because sex is so special and so important and so central. And it is when you have sex, it's a renewal of the, marital vows that you made on your wedding day, like in a physical fashion, which is kind of not quite it. Um, or it is a channel of grace between the spouses, which is also kind of not quite it. Um, and it's just, we, we've elevated something to try to persuade people like this is just so special. So you will definitely want to conform your behavior once you realize how great this is. And we have taken it out of its full context of really this, it's to build up interpersonal union and communion. Like that's the whole purpose of the theology of the body is to understand the union and all of the levels upon which it exists between spouses. And I did find like reading Amoris Laetitia, how like deeply Pope Francis speaks like realistically on the level of that emotional union. That is, it's not just, we're going to take this part of your life and separate it out and then use it to make an argument about 
birth control methods or something. We are going to keep it in context and give you a realistic vision that can actually carry you through your life and all the challenges. Um, so I found that like really striking and very like a different way of contextualizing like how the church teaches or even talks about these yeah. things. Because when we're, it seems to me that a lot of the motivation for presenting the teaching in that way is sort of an apologetic. It's like the culture is like this. They don't value sex enough. They think that contraception is fine. We need to make a great argument for why it shouldn't be that way. And so here's how we're going to do it. And so whenever you're approaching things from that perspective, you're going to miss the integrity of the whole. And yeah. And, and the reality of marriage is that the whole thing is a channel of grace. Right. right. Like, <laughs> like marriage isn't just your wedding day. It's right. the it's the whole covenant. So every act of love in that marriage um, is the Lord transforming you and transforming your spouse. Uh, there's a phrase that the Pope uses in Amoris where it's like um, in the lifelong sacrament of marriage, um, acts of love um, through our acts of love, the Lord crafts the other person right? Into the man or woman they're supposed to be. That marriage is a type of craftsmanship, right? Yeah. Um, which takes a long time. And it's a lot of little gestures. Like it's it's not just sex. It's the whole of married life and every act of love that sanctifies me and my spouse. And and you can't legislate it. You can't, you can't just make some canon law or, or set down some rules and expect people to follow. I mean, I, Catholic guilt works on a lot of, but not as many people as it used to. Um, I mean, there's no canon law about who should do the dishes on Wednesday nights? <laughs> no, but actually there might be, um, but More I don't laundry. know. I'm not an ex, I'm not a canon lawyer, but um, no, but it's, it's like one of, and, and I, this is the thing that I don't, I don't quite get. It's like this movement, to enforce this view of orthodoxy, which is orthodoxy, which is not always in communion with the Pope, um, is an, an attempt to impose legislatively these rules to, to sort of try to not even, and it's not even like any of these things have a chance of winning legislation, but really unless, unless people become, start to learn and become converted on what, uh, and and actually the and the church's teaching and the love and and desire out of desire and love for god want to improve and to and to become uh to follow christ then i mean i don't i don't see how how they plan even though they're engaged in a culture war i don't really see any route to victory well and that. like i'm also too not just like like you said not just learn but actually live it like when you know, I've been reading through it more as Leticia. It's, um, and even I got a sneak preview of an article that Rachel's working on, which I won't, I won't spoil it all now like I did last week. But as I was reading through that as well, um, and kind of um, Rachel's like my go-to theology of the body person. So, um, it's this idea that like like you guys have been saying like. Amoris Leticia is a blue is it's a blueprint or like an understanding of how you know husband and wife how how people work within a family and what that all should look like right not just a set of rules right and so when these have been deduced to a set of rules which yes would be theoretically legislative let le legislatable 
<laughs> anyway, um, when it's when these circles tend to deduce it to a set of rules instead of a way to live, and as you're living, progressively grow toward deeper um, forms of love and chastity, right? When it's deduced to the rules you see in these circles, this is why um, you see, again, the kind of like warping of the sexuality anyway. This is why last week, I think it was, we were almost going to allude to the marital debt and these circles that believe that like, you know, you can't deny sex to anybody in a marriage for any reason, right? Kind of thing. Um, and it's because of that overinflation of the role of the physical act of sex without an understanding of how conjugal and married love work in the lived reality, right? Because if you're checking those boxes, but that's still like, that that's your thing. Like, okay, I'm having married, uncontracepting sex, but then I have to say yes, you know, whenever my husband wants it. Like, that is not the church's teachings. That's just boxes that have been, like, you've deduced the teaching so much to a fault. Um, and so... Yeah, so I was thinking of that, you know, that too, that this is a blueprint for a way of life. And also when we can kind of step back and take the out of context stuff and, and you know, um, the deduction to a fault and start examining these issues, it also gives space for other forms of love that are not just conjugal love. So if in our Catholic circles, the end all be all is having the right kind of like Catholic sex, right? Well, what does that do for celibates? Or what does that do for people not in um, heterosexual sacramental marriages? Like what places that give them, right? So the discussion of all the points that I have been going through in my chapter, um, speaking to the, the broadness of other definitions of even fruitfulness of the family and what to love looks like, right? I think it really, um, I think bringing that to the forefront and changing that discussion since the last like 20, 30 years of the apologetics focus on anti-contraception and um, anti-homosexual um, um, relationships. Like, I think if we can do that, we can really like find a place for things. Um, yeah, there's a ground to have a conversation about shared experience about experiences and how our experiences are working to the same reality of love, but in different ways and lived and experienced differently. And it's sorry, Paul. <laughs> sorry. Well, I was going to say, as you were talking about the hyper focus, like two concrete examples came to mind. Um, so one is in, in NFP circles and NFP culture. And, and I hear this, this, this said, and they, they pull up some like statistics to back it up that essentially the claim is NFP is going to divorce-proof your marriage. In other words, if you have and only have the right kind of Catholic sex, that your marriage is divorce-proof or something to that, like, illusion. Um, and, and it's an abusive statistics. It right. is. I mean, it could be the strong religious, you know, re religious beliefs cause of the marriage. Yeah. But whether you're having the right kind of sex, come on. There's like, yeah, there's so many layers wrong with it. But it's it's yeah. proof that there's like um, we're focusing on one tree so much that we're going to ignore the whole forest. Mm -hmm. And the other mm -hmm. is this focus on chastity. I think especially in um, um, teenage like chastity talks. And before the show, um, Melinda, you were talking about how you taught junior high theology of the body at one point, but there's such an emphasis on like, don't have sex before you're married that we don't even talk about how to concretely love the, the person in front of me so much that I don't think I've ever heard a Catholic cha uh, chastity talk or curriculum spend any time, maybe significant for sure, no significant time, but maybe any time at all 
talking about consent. And like, how do you concretely love the person in front of you in a non-possessive way, right? Because that's the definition of chastity and not talk about consent mm -hmm. or not consider consent in any way. Like we've, again, we're, we're focused on, um, you know, you can only have the right kind of Catholic sex and we're missing everything else that's involved in actually loving someone. And it cuts off really opportunities for talking with others about, you know, the Me Too movement when you can't acknowledge the importance of consent. And the other kind of problem with a hyper focus on one area is sometimes you become so focused on one area that it becomes idolatrous. And so if we're making an idol of marriage as this relationship that leads to complete spousal fulfillment, by virtue of being a marriage, then that that itself is an idol. And I believe Don Goldstein brought this up in her recent post that marriage itself doesn't fulfill us because it's the couple who are submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And it's a shared reverence for Christ that fulfills us. Um, and so when we, when we focus on maybe some of these talking points and that becomes what people understand marriage and sexuality to be for, then we're kind of unwittingly presenting idols to people sometimes. And then they're not capable of even recognizing that or talking about that in a different sort of way when it's been presented to them as the antidote to a culture that doesn't value the things that they value. So I think what I've appreciated about Amoris Letizia the most is that it kind of opens up this really broad approach and, and ground for conversation about these issues in a way that we should be able to trust the Pope as the guarantor of orthodoxy to provide us that ground where we can have orthodox, even speculative conversations while really digging deeply into in different ways. Um, so hopefully people are doing that with this year of Amoris Laetitia. Um, but we'll be talking more about this on the site. Does anyone else have like anything to wrap? I don't want to cut anyone off yeah. if they had a great <clears throat> theology of the body point. I know Mike has an announcement about site content. But no more sex talk right now. Okay, go ahead, Mike. <laughs> okay, so um, just want to update our readers. I know that a lot of you guys have uh, it really enjoyed our Sunday Reflections by Father Satish Joseph, mostly. Um, we've had a few fill-ins here and there. Um, and, you know, we it really happened by accident. I think I overheard, I heard one of his homilies online and I messaged him and said I really enjoyed it. And then, uh, you know, next thing you know, he sends me the text to his next homily and we were looking for content for where Peter is and I posted it on a Sunday and then uh, people read it and people seemed to enjoy it. And especially during the pandemic, people really liked being able to read, um, you know, a very straightforward exegesis on, um, on the Sunday readings. Um, basically it was his homily, but then, you know, I would, tweak it and edit it, take out bullet points, put headers in. And if he said, you know, in a few minutes, as we, when we approach the altar to receive the Eucharist and I'd like rewrite it to say, whenever we approach the altar to receive the Eucharist. Anyway, he's <laughs> going to still be doing that for us, but at his recommendation, and I thought it was a good idea. Um, he suggested that we get a rotation of four uh, different people, one to take a different week of the month. Um, 
to reflect on the Sunday readings. So that's going to start next Sunday, Palm Sunday. Father Alex Roche of the Diocese of Scranton is going to provide us with um, his Palm Sunday reflection. And then the following Sunday, Easter Sunday, um, one of our uh, one of our writers will be a female biblical scholar, Angela Rasmussen. Um, and you're familiar with her work. She wrote earlier this week, I think, on good God, bad God, Old Testament God and New Testament God. And haven't nailed down the fourth one yet. But if you uh, but don't worry, we're still friends with Father Satish. And um, he is planning to. Um, and if you do want to read his homily or listen to his homily every week, he has a YouTube channel. Uh, he has his website. If you look at the bio on his on anything that he's written, it has a link to Isa Mita S. Ida Nisa S dot com. Um, And then finally, um, as you guys know, you know, we're uh, basically a volunteer nonprofit shoestring budget grassroots organization. So um, if you enjoy our content, please consider subscribing to our YouTube channel. Um, If you go to wherepeteris.com, there's a link on the right hand column, become a patron. Patreon slash where underscore slash Peter or wow, where. we really have one of these now at the end of our shows. That's awesome. I the feel like legit. Please yeah. So and brought to you by what are you guys drinking? I I have another energy drink. Not the, I have red energy drink. It's it's Amazon's house brand of, of it's legitimately called red energy drink for those the flavor, listening later yeah. you can't see mike's can yeah i'm holding up a can it says red energy drink the flavor <laughs> is red it's red it's what about is what you would spicy? expect i'd expect spicy <laughs> does, no does it no bad? no think like lollipops or or oh, like cherry i don't know red or a mix <laughs> it's red <laughs> I mean, I, I'm thinking like cinnamon gum. No, know, no, like no, 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 no. Like red. red. Big red. red. No, not big red. red. No. Like, What's what that? do you think when you see the, what do you think when you taste red? Like, no, do they have blue too or just red? I would assume there's a, I don't know. I really, I'm, I'm satisfied with, with the red. <laughs> You should have done your research into this. So you could tell us all about like what it means, what they well, have. Well, maybe our offer. Patreon sponsors, if there's yeah, enough interest. Yeah, we need interest. a Patreon level <laughs> where you supply Mike Lewis with new and creative energy drinks. Because that's really what gets me through <laughs> the day. Or are they paying you to endorse this on your like super popular YouTube channel? Are you getting an endorsement? No. <sighs> no. No. <laughs> No, no, but if you'd like to be a sponsor, go to our Patreon page. <laughs> so, so speaking of endorsements and shout outs, can I give a shout out to the Black Catholic Messenger podcast? They had an yes. episode this week yes. um, about the uh, the shootings in Atlanta. And it was a great discussion. Instead of us talking, us, you know, um, non-diverse group here talking about race issues, um, they had a really good discussion. Yeah, I'm friends with actually a lot of the... I mean, we we know Nate and we know Efren. No, Efren wasn't on that one. Uh, Steven. Steven. So, okay. So, story. Do we? I mean, we're running. Okay. No, we don't. Anyway. After we have another time. time. All, All right. Time you need. Thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. <laughs> we'll be back uh, next week. We will not be here on Thursday. We'll be here. We're we're thinking Wednesday. So Wednesday night because it's Holy Week next week. Oh, Holy yeah. Week. Tr- Triduum. 
I knew that. How do you pronounce it, Melinda? Trid um. Tridium. Tridium. Yeah, Tridium. There's two U's. Two U's. Trid um. Like vac um cleaner. Why are you asking me? Like, I'm the worst Catholic on this podcast. Say bye. We're going to turn this off now. Have a good weekend. Okay, bye. Bye.